You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, good evening. I'm delighted to welcome everyone to this panel on the roots of the revolution in Sudan. My name is Susan Stigant, and I lead USIP's programs in East Africa and the Greater Horn of Africa. The United States Institute of Peace was established by the US Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping to resolve violent conflict around the world. In 2019, the world watched with awe and in solidarity as men and women from across geographies and generations mobilized a mass movement to depose the Bashir regime in Sudan and to demand a democratic political transition. For many watching the news, it was hard to imagine what it must have taken to mobilize millions of people day after day. It was hard to grasp the investment, organization, and leadership that such mobilization requires. And it was particularly striking that sustained protests continued in the face of internet and telecommunications cuts and under the threat and the deadly reality of violent repression by security forces. For many watching, it was truly extraordinary that Sudanese citizens continue to demonstrate the deepest courage, determination, and commitment to nonviolence and the goals of the revolution. And that that determination and commitment continues even now following the October 21, 2021 coup and amidst the political and economic crisis. Today, we have the honor of hearing from researchers and activists about their exploration and their experience with the civic origins of the protest movement. The report that will be discussed, as well as short two-page summaries, are available on the event page on USIP's website. This is a report that is important for Sudan and for Sudan's partners but also for others leading, accompanying, and supporting political transitions around the world and who wish to understand the critical role of movements in those transitions. It is our privilege at USIP to advance dialogues and inform policy based on evidence, experience, and learning. We work directly with African citizens, including women and youth, to build local capacities to manage conflict peacefully and to reduce future crises and the need for costly interventions. We advise and work with African political and civic leaders and national and regional governments and organizations to shape peace processes that ensure more sustainable solutions to violent conflict. And we provide a constructive platform for these kinds of discussions and reflections. At USIP, we consider our work and partnerships in Sudan as a top priority. We know that conversations are charged as the country seeks to reset the political transition. We know that the stakes are high as protests are anticipated on June 30th again this year, and violence against protesters continues. We know that today's topic is not a matter of academic interest, but is deeply rooted in the hopes aspirations, and hard-fought gains of the Sudanese people for a better future. And we know that there may be disagreements and diverging opinions about what is discussed today. And that is precisely why this type of discussion, dialogue, and engagement are needed. 
It is now my privilege to introduce Mr. Matthew Siebel, Research Officer at USIP's team on nonviolent action and peace and your moderator today. Matthew, over to you and our distinguished panelists. Thank you very much for that introduction, Susan. So as Susan has said, my name is Matthew Siebel and I'm a research officer here with the Nonviolent Action Program. I'll be moderating today's panel. Uh, to get us started, I'll briefly uh, provide some background for the origins of this panel. So the panel coincides with the publication of a USIP special report on the 2019 Sudanese revolution written by Maria Marovic and Zahra Haider, two of today's panelists which investigates the civic origins of the protest movement that deposed longtime President Omar al-Bashir. The report illustrates that while mass protests that successfully removed uh, Bashir in 2019 uh, seemed spontaneous, they did not, in fact, materialize overnight. Rather, they were based on years of determined civil society development in difficult and highly repressive conditions. And we will hear more from Maria and Zahra about the report's findings shortly. Uh, we also know that since Bashir's downfall, Sudan's democratic transition has struggled to consolidate its hard-won democratic gains, and progress is now threatened by a counter-revolutionary military coup. So figuring out how to get this democratic transition back on track in Sudan is the object of today's panel. And to that end, it is my pleasure to introduce four knowledgeable panelists to help us think through these challenges. Zahra Haider is a lifelong Sudanese activist and is also one of the co-authors of the special report I've just mentioned. Zahra has been a nice, uh, key nonviolent training facilitator with the Nonviolent Action Program here at USIP and has worked with us since 2018 in both Sudan and South Sudan. Maria Marovic is the other special report co-author. She is a former program director for Freedom House and the International Republican Institute in East Africa and is a senior advisor to the Giza Group, which works on civic media access in closed societies. Jawhara Kanu works for USIP's Nonviolent Action Program, where she is the Synergizing Nonviolent Action and Peacebuilding Program Officer for East Africa. She's responsible for organizing nonviolent action trainings in Sudan, South Sudan, and Ethiopia. Jawhara is also a political economist with expertise in de developmental economics. Uh, and last, uh, Muna Karashi, I believe she's just jumped on, which is great, uh, is currently a program manager for the Sudan Commission for Social Security and Poverty Reduction, where she works to provide cash transfers to young Sudanese mothers. During the transition period, she has also served uh, as the minister's office director at Sudan's industry and trade ministry and has been involved with numerous humanitarian and development uh, enterprises in Sudan's recent history. So thank you all very much for being here. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, moving forward, the rest of the panel will unfold as follows. To start, Maria and Zahra are first, first going to provide us with uh, a more detailed description of the report's findings. Uh, then uh, Jawhara and Muna will offer some reflections on the current situation in Sudan. That should get us about halfway through the panel. Uh, the second half of the panel will feature a moderated discussion, as well as time for audience uh, Q&A. If you'd like to ask a question, you can type the question into the corresponding window on the main event page online. I will uh, call out questions as we go. Okay, so I believe uh, that brings us to uh, Maria and Zahra. Zahra, over to you both. Uh, thanks, Matthew. Uh, my name is Maria, as previously mentioned, and I will start us off by trying to present uh, uh, in a short and concise way the key findings of the report. But before we move to the key findings, I just wanted to share a couple of uh, notes about how this report came about and what is really the background of this research and how this research was conducted. Um, 
the reason this research was conducted was uh, for uh, the collaboration between Zahra and me. And as the revolution in Sudan started unfolding, we decided to go on a documentation project, primarily to try to record and document the narratives as the revolution was at its height. Um, so the uh, main uh, research method for, for this report was conducting interviews with key informants. The interviews were conducted during the sit-in uh, in Khartoum, uh, primarily, and they took place, the interviews, most of the interviews took place between May 17th and May 27th, 2019. Uh, total number of the respondents for this research was 42, 29 male and 13 female. And within these 42, we held one uh, focus group discussion that included nine participants. Uh, the profile of the interviewees uh, who offered their thoughts and analysis uh, was as follows. Uh, we interviewed members of the FFC leadership, of the SPA leadership, a leadership of uh, several different women's groups, media activists, members of teachers union, uh, several civil society veterans, activists from the demands group, uh, from neighborhood resistance committees, from political parties, from professors union, uh, members of the political wings of the armed movement and the leaders of the initiatives. Uh, the, you will see that in the interview, the. Uh, names are anonymized for security reason. Uh, but uh, within these 42, we had a good um, uh, selection across different generations of civil society actors, which I also think is important as you're listening to, uh, to the key findings. And we identified basically three generations that participated in this research. Uh, we had these veterans of civil society who uh, uh, some of them uh, really fought for uh, democracy and human rights since Bashir came to power. Uh, then we had uh, a section of generation that initiated um, the 2013 uh, protests, which are in the uh, Sudanese imagination considered as the, the most recent and uh, close to success uh, mass mobilization effort in September 2013 that was unfortunately crushed violently. Uh, and we had a generation of interviewees that matured in the period from 2016 and finally those who became active in the civil society uh, in the 2018 and in the, in the neighborhood resistance committees. Uh, the reason we decided as I mentioned previously, to embark on this project uh, initially was really to document uh, because we are both aware that narratives change and the analysis changes as um, history happens and as the political circumstances uh, change. So this is actually a kind of a window to that moment when the revolution was at its height. So all the uh, respondents were actually asked um, uh, open-ended questions uh, and we asked them to explain in their own um, words and, and how they see uh, that uh, the revolution was possible and the success that was achieving at, at that time. Um, 
and also uh, to explain why this effort in 2018 was successful versus the protests in 2013 uh, that were crushed. Uh, so uh, when we got all these responses and analyzed the interviews, uh, we were um, uh, basically um, uh, organizing our research ag ag around the key themes that transpired and that were uh, mentioned by pretty much all the respondents. And they defined the, the key factors for success as follows. So first uh, important factor, the key factor was the unity of leadership. Uh, the second was the commitment to nonviolent struggle or the commitment to the method of struggle, which was also referred to as civil resistance in Sudan, uh, which in the end resulted in increased participation. That is mass mobilization that we saw it. They also, uh, beyond these key factors for success of the mass mobilization, um, navigated us through the, the mechanism that enabled this to happen. And the mechanism was something that we defined as um, different civic spaces uh, that provided um, a space uh, for activists of all ages to connect, uh, to coalesce and learn. Uh, so I will go a little bit and talk about the leadership as a, as a key factor. Uh, so what happened is that um, the the key moment um, uh, that uh, gave that, that propelled the the movement was when the Sudanese professional associations emerged as a as a leader of the movement. And for those uh, who may be on the call and who are not aware of what the Sudan uh, Sudanese Professional Association is, it's a, it's a basically a coalition of, of shadow unions of teachers, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and other professions. Uh, so um, it all started when they basically decided to uh, shift from presenting their quote unquote unionist demand for a revision of salaries to the government uh, and presented the demand to the uh, to the presidential palace uh, for Bashir to step down. That occurred in December 25th, 2018, uh, but the protests were already taking place in uh, uh, across Sudan. And this is actually the moment when the SBA decided uh, to um, uh, to proclaim the the political goals. Uh, of their struggle, and that is how they came to the helm of the movement. Uh, the reason um, in, uh, respondents uh, claimed uh, that was really important is because the mobilized people really needed uh, some kind of leadership, and SPA at the moment uh, was seen as untamed politically. Uh, they were not known. Uh, necessarily across to Sudan, uh, but uh, the mere fact that their leadership was not uh, traditional um, hierarch hierarchical leadership, uh, but that they presented themselves through uh, a number of convincing uh, individuals who were communicating the agenda uh, was really a breath of fresh air. Then uh, they were seen as uh, uh, representing professionals, and in most societies, uh, teachers and doctors and lawyers are seen as um, uh, respectable figures. Uh, 
Um, finally, uh, they were uh, seen also as being a sector of society that is in touch with the grievances uh, that people faced on a daily basis, simply by their nature, by the nature of the work in the communities. Teachers were working in schools and were working with all sorts of students coming from all uh, sorts of backgrounds. Uh, the same for doctors. Uh, so I'll move a little bit faster now. Uh, I suggest you can all read the report for many other details. Uh, but these, the, these credibility, this credibility cluster of, of traits that SBA had uh, actually enabled them to then later uh, negotiate um, the, the coalition and the formation of the coalition that we know as FFC, uh, which became a political vehicle uh, for, uh, for transition. Uh, then uh, another, uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, these, are, these are the kind of the, the overall factors that were really important and unity of leadership and the nonviolent discipline being really important ones. Zakhar will talk a little bit more about the nonviolent discipline, uh, but the key mechanism for, uh, for this mobilization to take place uh, was uh, beyond leadership that everyone was ready to follow uh, the spaces or the mobilization units uh, where this activity and implementation of the mobilization agenda was taking place. And um, uh, these came or, or they, uh, they uh, transpired in Sudan in a place where the environment was heavily constricted for uh, activities of the political parties and civil societies. And Zahra, uh, I will hand it over to you to speak a little bit more about what these spaces were. Um, thank you, Maria. Uh, thank you a lot. Um, actually, um, while leadership that everyone was ready to follow was necessary, uh, without mobilization mechanism organization that can implement activities and work on the ground across Sudan, the 2018 revolution will, would not be possible in, in, uh, based on what we uh, presented in this report. Um, in this research, uh, we identified several keys of spaces uh, that uh, created out of mobilization to reach number we saw in 2018 and 2019. Uh, the key space that um, is a mechanism of mobilization in the environment that it's um, Abrasive to traditional civil society institution, media, and political party, turned out to be an organic organizational uh, unit rooted in Sudanese traditional of community services and um, union. So here we talk about uh, Mubadarat, which is mean uh, initiatives, um, the so-called demands group, um, shadow unions, and neighborhoods committees. Uh, I will start with Mubadarat. Mubadarat or initiatives uh, are a group of volunteers based in Sudanese concept of Nefir, call of, of mobilized uh, for common work that stepped in where there is no uh, there is a need or where government was failing to provide much needed services or um, social services. There were hundreds of such initiatives in, in the ground with uh, their own network and uh, engaging in wide range of issues in area. Some uh, example included um, a provi uh, provi uh, provision of flood um, uh, reliefs, uh, collecting uh, 
garbage, um, offering um, free medic medicines and covering medical uh, expenses for families who cannot uh, offer it, uh, organize um, reading and discussion clubs, uh, collecting, uh, distributing, collecting and distributing books to school um, uh, children and and so on. There is a many, um, I cannot just uh, um, mention all the, the initiatives. Uh, so secondly, the call demand group uh, were organized uh, to advocate for um, correcting specific policies uh, har harming local uh, communities. These were um, hyper-localized and mobilized around issues like harmful uh, effect of uh, building of the dams in the local farmer or um, against land grabbing in uh, farming um, regions or even um, around rights of uh, small worker in the agricultural sectors and sea uh, ports. Um, when you talk about shadow union called professional association of different professionals like teacher, doctor, lawyer, engineering, and journalist. Uh, this is another um, space for mobilizing uh, rooted to along Sudanese traditional of uh, organized labors. Uh, they began to organize themselves in 2011 and slowly building network and uh, coalitions. Um, the neighborhoods committees, which um, the fourth um, space, uh, another highly localized civic civic, uh, civic space, organized based on the neighborhoods uh, grade of Khartoum, which was used during the crash September 2013 protest to organize uh, demonstration. Some of those committees uh, survived and continued to mobilize around community needs and neighborhoods in period between 2013 until uh, 2018. Uh, at the mass protest uh, gained uh, mo any momentum in 2018, uh, the model uh, expanded throughout Khartoum and become uh, a key organizational unit to uh, deploy tactics of non-violent struggling at very local level, uh, organizing protests, street cleaning, uh, strategy meetings, and listening with, um, and uh, liaising with, um, with other actors. Sorry for that mistake. So, they were not, why they are um, success, uh, they were not uh, political or highly political engaged in uh, party uh, politicals. They respond to community needs and uh, grievances. They were um, embedded in community so highly localized, uh, delivering community assistance, which is uh, earned them uh, credibility and trust uh, of communities. Uh, they employ large network of members uh, and volunteers. Therefore, uh, when SPA leadership uh, emerged, uh, offering clear goals and methods for uh, for, mobilize, for mobilization, they were uh, able to use the capital that previously built and call those communities to to action and they respond for sure. So um, finally, um, a 
I presented, discussed the role of various training, conference, uh, workshop that played an uh, important role uh, as another structural space that prepared after for mobilization. Uh, those were important for um, allowing uh, for new skills development, strategy planning, and non-violence action, which become uh, increasingly available in the period of 2014 to 2018. Uh, for lesson learning and reflecting a shortcutting of uh, previous efforts and other uh, methods of struggling for building trust, networking, and negotiation coalitions. So um, all these aspects or all these spaces are reflected in our in interviews in different uh, way. Like for example, I, I just want to mention some example. One of our uh, our uh, interviews is with um, the old civil society actors. He he talk a lot about um, capacity building roles in, in in preparing people for this revolution. Uh, we also reviewed women uh, um, activists, and she talked about how women organize themselves, how they um, they they increase their capacity how they uh, deal with the challenge that they face. Some of these challenges are, are cultural. Uh, also, the last uh, example, like activists uh, uh, that we interviewed, they talk a lot about uh, nonviolence as, uh, as a value and uh, how they started claiming uh, about it uh, from the training or from um, movies sometime or something like that. So um, in this report, we reflect all that and I will encourage um, all our attenders to see the report. Thank you, Matthew. Amazing. Thank you very much for that summary, both of you. Uh, I will now turn it over to uh, Jauhara to talk about the current situation uh, in Sudan. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, I'm really glad to be here today with our distinguished panelists. Um, I was actually uh, also very glad to have read the report. Um, it was heartwarming for me being a Sudanese person witnessing this history being made. Um, and it also reminded me um, the effort and, the, and the, all the struggle that people have gone through over this period that the report investigates and how far have we come. Um, it was also a reminder that the revolution is a, is a state, not a moment. So we're still, uh, we, we still say we're still in, in a revolution state. Um, so um, thank you again. Um, if I want to delve into the, into the current status today, I would like to start by focusing on the nonviolent action side of things. Um, the report already investigates how nonviolent action seeds were sowed. And um, to some extent, they're still being sowed, but um, they're being ripe at as, as the same time. So it's still an ongoing process. Um, First, I, I, I would say that the first outcome or the first thing that, that we've been noticing is accumulated political knowledge um, that has been taking place. It has been spreading to more people and even the level of knowledge has been going um, deeper in a sense that um, the political participation, um, the, the, the level of involvement in, in current affairs and so on has been widely spread. We see new groups of women, new groups of young people and, and even groups that traditionally have been refraining from taking part in politics. And this is, of course, um, a positive outcome of nonviolence an action that it generates lots of um, lots of uh, participation and so on. Um, additionally, um, I would also like to, to highlight um, how nonviolent action has been adopted in new domains. Of course, Sudan has a long-standing history of nonviolent action movements, um, but but recently we've been seeing new trends. In a sense, um, we've seen 
sittings and new methods of nonviolent action being taking place in, in unconventional places. In a sense, um, areas such as Central Darfur, for, for instance, had a massive sitting in Nertaki in 2020. Um, uh, areas such as Darfursan had their first environmental sitting in Africa, where they were protesting cutting of trees and so on. So we've been seeing nonviolent action being adopted into the Sudanese context and being um, uh, dealt with in, 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 in different cases that are not necessarily tackling the regime, but tackling local, locally contextualized issues. Um, um, another important point that I would also like to, to, to mention here is, um, is to what extent um, this, um, this nonviolent action uh, activities have been providing room for more critical thought on politics and participation. We've seen uh, so many charters coming out of resistance committees, different resistance committees across Sudan, and we've also seen critics and discussions and lives and you know different platforms discussing these charters and trying to bring another point of view. We've been having a space to um, to discuss different issues and also to to see the counter narrative of things that might have not been present uh, in the past thirty years. Uh, I'm not saying that it has been a rosy picture. However, we, we do need to recognize the, the positive outcomes of the nonviolent action that has been ongoing in Sudan and how it's been teaching and, 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 and reflecting um, stories from Sudan as well. Got it. So I think we were originally planning on hearing from Muna here, but she is dealing, uh, we've learned, with some very difficult circumstances at the moment. So she might not be able to jump on uh, for a little while longer. So uh, instead of that, I'm going to begin uh, with some moderated questions. Um, the first thing I want to ask our panelists about is leadership. So the special report emphasizes the importance of leadership under the FFC coalition and the Sudanese Professionals Association, the SBA. Uh, and analysts uh, since then, since since the like in the post-Bashir landscape, have expressed concerns that this leadership structure that helped to guide the revolution is now weakening, uh, which has made it more difficult uh, for the opposition to present a united front in favor of democracy. So what do you all think that civic actors need to do to re-solidify movement leadership in the weeks ahead? What, what actions can they take? Why don't we, I'll direct questions here. So why don't we start with Zahra and then, and then move on. So thank you, Matthew. Uh, based on our research and our interview, um, they mentioned the three three uh, aspects is very important to uh, to learn from uh, from the September uh, uh, revolution. Uh, one of them, ability to unite political uh, forces and masses, uh, that required a lot of trust uh, building uh, because lack of trust uh, was a big challenge in in overcome uh, the revolution. The second things, and it's very important to. Um, opening the door and keep the door open for everyone to participate. The best way of that, uh, that even that, yeah, is create a space of everybody to uh, participate. That's what happened in uh, September uh, Revolution. For example, we see that religions had a space, uh, artists had a space, um, army movement had a space, uh, traditional leader has uh, as, uh, has uh, yeah, he has a space. Um, even part of military um, at the, at the last stage had, had a space. So it's important for revolution to success. Uh, and uh, I, I want to highlight this point for the current situation. It's um, extended the revolution, ex extend the participatory, not close it and uh, making it very, uh, very, very inclusive uh, for uh, 
يعني main actors. The third point, uh, in my opinion, or uh, based on even revolution, um, uh, commitment to non-violence. And this is a big challenge now, as uh, Jomara uh, mentioned. And when we talk about committing nonviolence, we had an ability to create uh, and be creative in uh, designing uh, designing uh, uh, activities or um, giving a space for people to share uh, in our revolution to keep it uh, to keep it. Um, in, in non-violence way. Like in, in September Revolution, I remember that private sector participated by giving food, water, and uh, several things. So uh, it's important uh, to um, keep non-violence way, open the door, and be creative in, in the tactics that we, uh, we, we do. Uh, without that, uh, and that's what many of our interviews say, uh, we cannot have this this mass of people uh, uh, in the street, and there is a mass of people not in the street, but they support the revolution um, in different ways. Yeah, creativity and diversity and maintaining nonviolent discipline seem very important. Maria and, and Jahara, do you want to chime in here with anything else before we go on? Uh, I can I can chime in. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, what we uncovered during this research and what everyone said uh, uh, during interviews was really that uh, SPA's leadership was accidental, but it was successful because of the credibility. Um, and uh, I remember distinctly one interview is saying that when you go and take a bus, you don't ask who is the driver, but where the bus will take you. And I think this is what is needed again. Uh, so whatever uh, the leadership emerges out of this moment that we are facing now needs to be credible and needs to be able to attract uh, different sectors of the society. Where that will emerge, it's not very clear. Um, neighborhood resistance committees are, I think, very interesting actor to, to watch for more leadership uh, because they have taken since um, a more prominent role of a political agent. Uh, but they need to make sure that uh, they're representative uh, and uh, that they continue to build their skills for this type of political work that is required at the moment. Um, yeah, if I may jump in here. Um, yeah, I, I would, I'd also like to add something. Yeah, uh, the report emphasizes the importance of leadership. And yes, it was crucial for the success of the 2018 revolution. But I feel like um, there's so much, um, uh, if I may say, overrated emphasis on the importance of a united or a united leadership. We seem to be focusing on that question very much. We forget um, talking or mentioning other things um, in a sense that if the opposition manages to find um, the minimum level of, of, of unity across uh, like, you know, basic principles around democracy, around human rights, um, around, you know, commitment to transition and so on, it should be fine for the time being. Uh, because the way I see it is that it hasn't been in anywhere in the world that the opposition was a united front. So why should we expect it now in this moment from, from the Sudanese civil society, from the Sudanese opposition, from the Sudanese civilian arm in a, in a time, uh, in, in an age where we haven't been experiencing democracy for 30 years. It's not an easy process and it's not going to be an easy exercise. So I think the emphasis should be like, what is the very minimum that we can all agree on so that we push forward? And this has been clear just before the coup um, that um, the Juba, Juba, Juba peace agreement senators have been have been opposition as well. And we had the civilian army, which is uh, the civilian civilian arm, which is an opposition now, but they haven't been 
agreeing on the bare minimum of things, hence the fraction happened. So if you manage to get that level of consensus, at least it should be at least able to move us throughout the transition and then people can, you know, look for this united front <laughs> at, at later stages. But it, it seems to be a, a difficult task for me at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a very valuable point that, you know, it's it's unreasonable to expect the opposition to magically be, you know, perfectly, perfectly unified. That's just never how things work. Uh, so one other topic that I hope to ask the panelists about involves uh, mediation. So international actors like the UN uh, and the AU have attempted to mediate peace talks between the military and civilian groups. Uh, and it seems like these efforts have failed to reach a settlement thus far and that international actors are very clearly struggling with reputation or credibility problems. So can we talk more about why the protest movement has been skeptical of international mediation efforts and what, if anything, international actors should be doing uh, to improve those mediation efforts? I see that Muna's put her hand up, so I think she would like to answer that. Um, hi everyone. I'm not gonna answer this actually like uh, that, but I'm gonna talk about the current situation. Sorry for being late. Today we have uh, a plan in the demonstration, so we have a lot of patient and we have a lot of injury. Yo, that's why I'm in the hospital with them. Uh, I can give just a small brief about what's happening this day. And they say we have unplanned demonstration everywhere and every day from Bahri Omdurman and all the states, uh, which uh, have the leadership from the youth, the youth in the committees, and the youth in the street. So these days are a full a full of, uh, of activities, a full of action, because everyone is ready for 13 of, Ju of uh, June in this month, the big demonstration and the big planning demonstration. Uh, so I'm very sorry for not being there. I have the time to read the report, and I feel like uh, the report is really talking about what we have in the current situation in Sudan and what we have in the leadership. And I know that Zahra was, has a lot of working and activities with the youth in the street and the committees and everywhere to have a leadership from them and to get them to the right way. So I thank you, everybody, and I'm ready for any to answer any question you have it for now. Just I want to say hi now. And if you have any question, I can answer it. I'm the same for you. Maybe I will be out of the videos because I. I'm with the youth in the hospital. So if there is anything, I'm gonna listen for you all and answer everything you have. Sorry for that, it was unplanned demonstration. That's why we don't, I don't know what to do now, but I will be with you in all the Yeah, Muna, thank you so much for being here despite the, the difficult circumstances of today. We really appreciate you attending. Uh, so, so I've asked a question about uh, mediation. I'd be ha happy for any of the, the panelists to jump in and, and, and speak to the credibility of international mediators, if that's possible. So I can jump on that, if you allow me. So um, um, in, my, in, in my opinion, um, the mediation in Sudan, especially in this time, need to be um, create uh, understanding of, a deep understanding of um, the current situation in Sudan. So uh, there is a lot of mistrust in Sudan between the all uh, all parties. So uh, you cannot create a mediation process, um, traditional mediation process like what happened everywhere. I know mistrust is everywhere, but now in Sudan there is, yeah, for example, there is a lot of valid questions in the street. Uh, it's about how we trust that uh, traditional um, uh, transition justice will be. How we trust that military will um, will give us like. Um, uh, 
the, the power of, of uh, political power and economic power, by the way, how the power is uh, be palace to make us uh, uh, appear and participate. That's what you asked in the industry. On the other hand, for militaries, they, they want uh, people to forgive them about uh, the murder, about the, a lot of uh, blood uh, spilling in all the day. So without understanding that deep, uh, I think uh, traditional mediation process is, is difficult to work uh, in Sudan, uh, in my opinion. So uh, listening for everywhere is good, and I see mediation trying to, to do that now. But at the same time, uh, building trust is a long process. So I think this is a, a good, a good, um, uh, yeah, a good steps uh, to uh, reach uh, the goal of uh, mediation in my in my mediation in my opinion. Thank you. Got it. Okay. I, I, I agree that, you know, traditional mediation seems to be very difficult given how, how polarized the system is and just fundamental distrust in the military, which seems like it's going to be very difficult to recover. Um, a related question has to do with uh, the kind of persistence of nonviolent activism, nonviolent protests, and related civil society trainings. So the pre-revolutionary period featured many civil society and activism trainings. Uh, the report uh, describes, you know, that thousands of uh, Sudanese protesters over the five years prior to the revolution were involved in some sort of uh, civic organizations or, or, or run trainings like this. Uh, Jawhara and Zahra were both personally involved in some of these efforts. Uh, do you think that these trainings are still necessary or important going forward, or have they mostly kind of accomplished what, what they, they set out to achieve? How should we understand uh, uh, kind of these, these types of civil society building uh, efforts or interventions uh, in Sudan during this stalled transition period? I'll pitch that to uh, Jawhara and Maria, if possible. Thank you. Uh, um, um, that's, that's a very good valid question, Matthew. Um, um, I would start with, with saying that research has proven that capacity building is always the best way of intervention during uh, mobilization, uh, first. And second, I feel like in Sudan, we need this more than ever and, and even more so as we go in, in the future. And this, this is based on two opinions. First, these trainings have been providing a platform or a basic for movement toward democracy or establishing a democratic um, system. Sudan hasn't been experiencing democracy in a, in a while now. Um, it's, it's is relatively a new state um, in, in the modern concept of states. So we try and we're trying to lay the foundations of democ democracy, democratic um, building, and so on. So these trainings have been providing this capacity to different people in different areas um, with the knowledge and so on. The civic education trainings have been allowing people to like know their rights, how to interact with, with the state, how to interact with, with one another, and so on. Other trainings that are focusing on nonviolent action has been sharing experiences. Um, for instance, um, an average citizen would know the history of Sudanese revolutions, but might not be fully aware of, of, of experiences in different countries and how they, they, they relate or contract with our experiences and so on. So it is provided like more knowledge that people can learn from and reflect on. Additionally, these training spaces, as, as proven by the report, have been providing a platform for mutual understanding. So these spaces have been allowing people to interact in a safe space where they can actually have a dialogue, they can actually talk about different opinions, where 
you're not afraid of the other person judging you or you're not afraid of being judged on the ideas that you've been sharing. So it is laying a small foundation of a democratic process where people learn to hear and learn from each other, one another and each other. So, so yes, we do need these trainings. They're still viable now. And they're even more viable as we move along the transition and as we move to building a new democratic state of Sudan. Um, and I can add to what Johara uh, mentioned, uh, that uh, I agree with, uh, on what we said. There is a lot of need of training for, for sure, but uh, based on our experience in the previous three years in the transition um, period, uh, the state itself um, need, yani need to be built. But I'm not focusing on the state. I focus about teachers, for example, uh, media actors, uh, artists actors, uh, youth in general, neighborhoods committees, these these um, uh, these stockholders need a lot of capacity building uh, to complete the way that we started uh, on uh, um, 2018 to revolution and current revolution, by the way, because there is a big question about what next year and uh, what next. This question creates uh, capacity building, a lot of capacity building uh, requirement for um, the future of. Um, democratic transition. So I agreed on what uh, Joe Hara mentioned, but always when we talk about capacity building, we, we mentioned uh, the activists. Uh, yes, activist is, uh, training is very important, but there is a different uh, different categories also need to, to be part of the democratic, democratic transition, like um, leadership, uh, le uh, community leaders, for example, uh, teacher, as I said, uh, religious, people, uh, these, these, um, these targeted groups uh, need, need a lot, in my opinion. Thank you. Hi, if I can jump also to that, I think that the capacity building we need also for the youth about the democracy, so they can be leading the future of Sudan. So they will need a lot of, of awareness, a lot of training, a lot of capacity building in democracy and the meaning of democracy, and also the meaning of uh, of leadership, how they can lead ship, not just the street, but they can lead ship also the, the country and the government and everything. So so I think the capacity building should be also for the youth. Zahra are doing a lot of uh, capacity building, but I think if anyone can help with that, that's what we need in Sudan. Because most of the youth now, they just know about the demonstration and the revolution. But what next? This is why we need to have a capacity building for it to, so we can have uh, a very good future for Sudan and we can have a suitable situation for Sudan in the future. Thank you. Also, I forgot to add women. We need, want to ensure uh, women participate in the future. So they need a lot of uh, yeah, need building their capacity in leadership term, uh, at least in democratic um, aspects. Exactly. Um, if I let me add to the points raised by Zahra Amuna, I think um, the way I look at it is that we have two categories of, of active people, I wouldn't say activists, but active people in the space. Um, ones that are somewhat experienced in mobilizing and some are quite fresh, as, as Muna mentioned, that need to know the principles of things and so on. So um, for these new people, of course, they need to know the foundations of, 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 uh, of democracy, of a state and so on. And it's important for them to know that. And the older group needs to unlearn a few things that they've learned by practice. Because for the past 30 years, we did learn 
learn some um, some things that are not necessarily the most useful way. And we need to also be humble and know that you know there are different ways of de- doing things. And this is what the younger generation has been te- teaching us actually is that it's not necessarily our old way that has been has been have been that we've been repeating is the correct way but we we need to be open and learn new things as well so um yeah some learning and unlearning needs to be done yeah also i want to add small point uh actually even uh, based on our experience uh, learning and um, training are, are are one of the process of building trust so people when we started to be together uh, hearing each other accepting each other this is uh, a, a very important part of building uh, a trust and building a future image a uh, common future image for sudan so i think this is the most important things in training and capacity building Thank you. Yeah, I really like this this discussion of the training activities as a like a, a way to speak across differences, as teaching people how how to speak across differences, which seems really important to the current moment in Sudan. Um, before I get to audience Q and A, I'll ask one more question that I that I have, uh, which is about uh, the, the relationship between uh, protesters and soldiers in the military. So we know that a key component of uh, successful nonviolent action campaigns involves convincing the military or at least members of the military to support the campaign instead of repressing it. Uh, and, you know, that seems to happen initially in, in 2019 when the military sided with protesters against Bashir. But since then, it's become clear that, you know, the military has reversed course and has argued that military rule is ongoing military rule is necessary for security. So, you know, can anything be done to undo this shift? And to kind of more specifically, uh, we speak about the military as if it's some monolith entity as if you know every everybody in the military is captured by these generals at the top uh, but I'm curious as to what the panelists think about the relationship between the opposition movement and regular soldiers in the Sudanese army could those soldiers be convinced to to, to side with the people and, and refuse to repress nonviolent protests that are coming up uh, you know what how, how do you see the 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 links between the opposition and the military go ahead Zaha you've got your hand up Thank you, Matthew. Yeah, based on our interview and uh, which included in this report, um, one of the factors um, approaches of the military was uh, distinct, uh, dis- distinguishing between the leader of the army who uh, were involved in crimes and the junior officer in particular particular values. Uh, dealing with the military as a one of uh, block is mistaken in in in, in, uh, in, in what we're hearing from uh, people who are interviewed. The military needs to uh, analyze um, with the understanding of their structure and uh, the context uh, in which they were uh, working. Uh, in the end, the new Sudan will not be built by one side without other sides. We need everyone. Uh, in fact, uh, the imbalance existing in the aspects and uh, there is no uh, expectation for uh, the army uh, and without ob- objective dialogue and uh, agreement of common vision, which is um, the new Sudan that we dream uh, of, there will be no uh, victory. There may be a temporary victory, and then return again to the to the conflict, uh, as what happened usually in Sudan. We need to open the door for dialogue with um, the militaries. Uh, people or youth who are not part of this. Uh, I know that a lot of activists 
uh, said now that it's rarely to find someone who are not part of uh, the blood rivers in, in, in Sudan. But uh, if, if you open just a discussion with one of the youth, you find that they want all that to stop. They always said, this is not all of us. This is the military who st stay in the, uh, in the above. We don't want that, but the military structure is like that. So we need to open this discussion to, um, to, to understand them and give them the chance to under understand our side and then uh, focus to bring them in on our side. I think this is very important, especially in that time. And this is what we learned from December Revolution also. Exactly. Um, I think I think to answer your question, Matthew. I think again. I think we always like stuck in the in the in the in the uh, in the two sides of either black or white with the military, whether in or out, as if like you know it's just like one or the other. Why the question should be how can we deal with the military going forward, and how are we going to um, to reform the military apparatus, uh, the security apparatus, or even the paramilitaries and so on. Uh, because at the end of the day, I mean, it would be nice to live in a world where we don't need an army, we don't need military, and you know, no one has to carry an arm to defend one's country and so on. But it doesn't seem to be logical for the time being. So uh, we, we have to deal with what we have now. I think the questions should be about um, uh, talking about unified national security strategies, talking about how can we um, sway those people who are like um, uh, in, in line with our democracy uh, values and our principles and so on. And I mean, at the end of the day, Sudan can fit everyone as long as we have the main principles, as long as we believe in, in democracy and those who refuse, and that's another case. So as long as these people seem to be sharing the same principles. So as I mentioned, uh, unified security strategies, um, wild consultation about the role of military, um, the, the level of intervention in politics, the level of intervention uh, in state governance and so on should should be um, the question rather than whether the military should be in or out now. I mean, I do hope in the future that no one can, no country needs an army, but I don't know if I would live to see that lifetime. Yeah, also I can add to that uh, on what uh, Johar mentioned. Um, I feel like there is a gap in understanding democracy and human rights in the military sides. Like uh, one of the wonderful things happening in, in these protests, like you find uh, activists, young activists, by the way, who stand uh, in front of the military and tell them about the value of democracy and value of accepting other and value of, of, of human rights. So uh, these protesters, uh, yeah, sometimes not always, they're trying to increase the awareness for uh, the, the other part. Uh, we didn't, uh, yeah, this aspect is it's absent completely on their structure and their their um, uh, their culture. Which uh, question of capacity building. I think these forces need a lot of capacity building in terms of human rights and democracy. Hi, if I can just uh, add to that, I think as what Zahra said, really all of them need to have a lot of capacity building in a human rights and how to deal with the human rights without using gun and, and other things. So I um, just would like to agree with that. They really need it. They really, they don't have any capacity building in that. So it's a very big gap. If we can, if you would like to have a civil uh, country in the future, government and everything, we need them to be a part of it by training them and by having a capacity building for them all. Uh, yes, and I just want to add something conceptually from the 
nonviolent struggle perspective and in terms of how you build the participation and how do you build alliances. What typically happens with the security sector is they do not necessarily can always be completely on your side, nor that should necessarily be the goal of the movement, but more about um, convincing them to look the other way. Uh, so to speak. And there will always be a difference. And I think someone mentioned at the panel that this is not a monolithic structure. There will always be a difference at the calculation at the different level of the, of the security services, where the top leaders usually have much more to lose. Uh, whereas uh, that is not consisted only on a small percent of the leadership but the security services are also consisted of others who have completely different calculation. And it is possible with the successful uh, movement and the successful outreach and the successful messaging to those different tiers of the security sector to uh, change their calculation and to have them more, um, or uh, let me put it this way, less oppressive towards the movement, which is sometimes sufficient. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the focus has been on these high-level dialogues between the generals and and the leadership of the opposition. But perhaps we should be more interested in kind of these middle or low-level interactions between everyday protesters and everyday soldiers, and how to how to to bridge those divides. Uh, okay, so I'm going to turn to audience questions now. We have a couple great ones. Uh, First, Nick Swanson asks about food insecurity in Sudan. Uh, so uh, as far as I understand, this is becoming a very serious issue this summer and part fueled by the war in Ukraine. I, I, I read recently that something like a quarter of Sudanese are likely to suffer from serious food insecurity uh, over the summer and fall. Uh, so how do, how do the panelists think that this situation is going to impact the ongoing protest movement, I guess, in combination with general economic struggles that Sudan is currently experiencing? Matthew, I'm sorry, I feel like I missed the first part of your question. If you may just like repeat it in summary, please. How food insecurity relates to what? Yeah, just the, the, the ongoing protest movement. How, how will increasing food security insecurity in Sudan affect the ongoing protest movement is the question. Yeah, if I if I may jump in here, yeah, food insecurity seems to be um, a looming crisis. Or if, if if it hasn't started already, um, forecasts are saying that like at least one one out of four Sudanese people are um, uh, insecure or um, in the danger of being uh, food insecure over the next month. Uh, and an important link to make here to the nonviolent movement is how um, access to bread and access to food has been one of the the triggers, if if I may say, to to, to the ongoing uh, to, to the ongoing revolution. So yes, it does affect because the the harder the economic situation is, the more difficult it is for people to to um, if I if I may say to um, to deal with whatever political injustice that's there. Because at the end of the day, there is the active there is active mass that that engages in political activities, and there is a, a huge decent amount of people that just cares about making a living, which is fine. But you know these difficult situations eventually would, would lead more people to get involved in this dissatisfaction with a, with a political situation and dissatisfaction with this existing regime, whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, for many people, their goal is to make a living, to have you know a good uh, welfare and to have a good life and so on. But the moment that starts to be an issue, then it might be a cause for more people to be angry and so on, in addition to the people that are already mobilizing and so on. 
So I can add short sentence concerning that uh, based on our uh, interviews and in the report also, uh, one of the successful keys like uh, people uh, moved not based on the political issue, based on their needs and based on how they sit uh, like the leaders are, are mobilizing and moving based on their need, not high high level of political uh, aspect. Uh, that's why I think insecurity is supporting revolution to continue. Food insecurity. Thanks. Okay. Um, I just got another question from uh, Hamid Khalafala which is what needs to change to enable the international community to engage with the pro-democracy movement in Sudan more effectively, specifically the resistance committees. So, so we know that since uh, in, in the post-Bashir landscape, the resistance committees have taken on more of a central role in, in, the, in opposition organizing as the, the FFC and the SPA seem to have become uh, less credible actors. So how, how does the international community more effectively engage with the resistance committees? Uh, if I can jump to this uh, directly, I think the most important thing that they need to have more communication with them. They need to listen for them more and they need to listen uh, from everyone in the residential committee, especially to know from them what they need, to know from them uh, their objective, to know their name, from them the change they are looking for. So I think the first thing and the most important thing that they need to listen for them and have a more communication with them, more communication too, not just like a meeting, maybe it can be through the messages they can send through the media, especially the social media, through the direct meetings, through the online meetings, through the every, every communication tools they can have it. So whenever you have more communication and more connecting with the residential committee, they can trust you more and they can tell you more about what they need and the change they are looking for. So I, this is my adding point, the communication and the communication and the communication. I think Muna sums it up very nicely, but uh, I would like to, to elaborate more on this. Um, I think the benefit of the resistance committees or, or the advantage of them is that them being horizontal in a sense that there isn't like a clear hierarchy. However, this is also a disadvantage uh, for, for some people is that it's not easy for you to, you know, get someone as a leader of the resistance committees and, you know, get consensus of, on whatever point that they say uh, and so on. And this is a new domain that the international community has to deal with. Like historically, you know, you go into a country, you get five opposition leaders, you get them in, in a nice hotel, you have a meeting, and then you have consensus to share it back with the people. But now it's not the case. Now we have to do the hard exercise of appealing to people, make them come to us rather than, you know, sending invites and so on. Uh, in, in, in a sense that, you know, we need to find ways that resistance communities can actually trust us and come to us uh, and, and, and share things, be it international communities, be in all civil society, be in whatever and so on. Um, and and this, is, this is a very important thing. However, doing this exercise will always crippled by the international communities bureaucracy, um, the resistance committees have a very fast pace. Uh, one day, like they organize something, next day they're out in the street. But the international community is always crippled with the bureaucracy of making decisions, of, you know, hearing this statement, and then months later we would hear like an action coming out of that statement as well. So it's a new domain that we need to investigate. And if the international community is actually keen on moving forward, the new methods need to be adopted. The same way we adopted new nonviolent action techniques, the, the international bureaucracy needs to adopt new ways that fit the new the new scenarios that we're dealing with. And it's not just a Sudan thing. Across the globe, people are, are, are evolving and are innovating new techniques, and, and hence um, the global governance system needs, needs, needs to adapt.
Maria, would you? I thought I got a sense that you wanted to add something here. No, you're good. Okay. Yeah. I. I, no. you know, I think, oh, go ahead, Sarah. Okay, it's in the way in the same way. I just want international committee if you can send a message here. Understand that the future of Sudan is built by the image of this generation, this new generation. So stop dealing with the old generation. You need to understand that this generation had a had a view of uh, of future of Sudan, and uh, it's a, a most bright uh, view of uh, of Sudan. So um, according with them as a leader. Uh, give them a chance, give them the space to, to present uh, to the world. Uh, that the, the only way to uh, understand how they think and uh, where we want to go. Thank you. Yeah, so more more dedicated engagement with youth activists, I think is the, the, the clear message there, despite the, the coordination difficulties of decentralized movements. Uh, so one other audience question comes from Real Khalifa, who asks, how important was the use of social media in terms of mobilizing people into nonviolent action, and particular, uh, particularly in creating solidarity among the Sunnis diaspora living abroad? I'll pitch that to Maria and Zahra to start because they uh, address it in the report. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, it was it was incredibly important. That was one of the spaces that we didn't uh, anal analyze in depth in the report, but uh, that definitely played an important role uh, as a communication space, as mobilization space, um, as a space where all sorts of activities were taking place, uh, including uh, you know reporting on the on the security risks that were that were present during the mobilization and so on. Um, definitely the internet penetration is a factor there and uh, not everyone across Sudan was able to use these spaces. Uh, I mean, social media and uh, different messaging applications. Uh, so people uh, figured out the way how to, uh, how to move and transition uh, between those who had access to internet and uh, using more traditional means of communicating, uh, even you know, from the meeting to the communities uh, verbally, uh, based on what was happening on the social media. So thank you for that question. I wish we spent more time in the report discussing that, but it was definitely a very important um, element of uh, an important, uh, let's say, a factor that facilitated organization. And as one of the even senior civil society leaders uh, said during the interview, uh, basically Facebook at one point during the revolution uh, became this um, this uh, public forum, like a like a public um, assembly. Uh, where the ideas were shared, where the ideas were refined, and through which, uh, for example, SPA accepted some ideas that were coming from the ground up. Yeah, I also want to add um, the question that it's not um, provided concerning concerning that. I think diaspora, Sudanese diaspora, um, play a great a great work uh, during the revolution uh, during uh, uh, september revolution until the moment so i want to highlight some um, issues that they they did uh, actually uh, very effectively when the um, regime shut down the the, the internet two times uh, the diaspora people um, transferred the information about human abuse to the world so if you remember um, the, the campaign of blue sudan it's completely 
weekly organized by diaspora uh, people. Uh, they also uh, yani add a lot in organizing people in the ground and they are uh, very well organized. Yani I see a lot of diaspora people in different countries supporting the revolution or supporting it. But Sudanese revolution, they are unique because they started to organize themselves. There is a lot of group in Twitters, in Facebook, in, in different uh, groups, even in the ground, to support the idea of revolution until the moment they continue. They didn't stop. They didn't feel uh, that we done. Uh, and they organized even um, offline activities. Remember the big march in U.S., in, in Washington based to, to supporting uh, the revolution. So uh, I think this is one of the unique aspects of Sudan revolution. And as Maria said, we didn't cover this in our report, but we think this is another thing because in my opinion, this is something need to be researched uh, separately. It's a big issue how the diaspora doing, uh, what they're doing for, their, for uh, the revolution and still doing till the moment. Yes, and there were there were some. Uh, we didn't investigate this further, as as Zahra mentioned, but it's definitely worth exploring more because uh, in this case, diaspora played uh, a very positive role, which is not always the case uh, when we are talking about uh, uh, different uh, diasporas around the world, right? Uh, and I think. Um, uh, they, they also supported with funding, which I think it's really important to to mention. Um, if I may appeal to a certain part of the question about how social social media contributed to building solidarity among Sudanese people, uh, be it in Sudan or, or outside, outside Sudan. It's true that not everyone has access to social media, but it has been evident that social media has been contributing to building a unified solidarity about issues ongoing in Sudan. Sudan is a very big country and not necessarily everyone knows about issues happening in other regions. And this has been the case for years. You would see that, you know, there is a massive incident happening in Eastern Sudan and the rest of the country not necessarily engaging with it or talking about about it. This is not the case anymore. Um, whenever something happens in any part of this country, now there is access to knowledge about it and people are actually engaging, demanding change and so on. And not only that, even politicians, public figures and leaders are being called out when they don't engage to these local issues. So for instance, if a leader, uh, whatever leader, political, whatever in Khartoum, uh, tweets about something, why something is happening in Eastern Sudan, people would be like, people are dying in Eastern Sudan, why are you not talking uh, about that matter and so on. So it did contribute to building a unified um, solidarity about whatever issue that's happening uh, across Sudan and so on, and it's still ongoing. And yeah, these effects are difficult to kind of quantify specifically, but I think it's it's clear that it was quite important. Uh, so we're, we're about at the end of our time here, and I just want to give the panelists one last uh, chance to chime in here with what key message or takeaway uh, would you most like to, to send to our audience today about the, the ongoing protests and, 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 and uh, efforts, uh, pro-democracy efforts in Sudan? I'll start with Jawhara here, and then we can go around the table. Okay, uh, I, I was taken by surprise, actually. Um, I think I think the key the key message is that there is a lot to learn from the ongoing revolution and still unfolds and it's still ongoing, um, and there is also a lot to provide. So as long as we have that in mind, we need to we don't need to like keep our hands off Sudan. We need to still keep supporting the ongoing um, change. We we'll have to call on somebody. How about Maria? <laughs> I think it's clear, and I, I'm echoing uh, Jawahara here, uh, Jawahara, sorry, uh, that, you know, Sudan belongs to the generation that carried out this uh, mobilization and that, uh, that was active during the revolution, and that is the generation that needs to be supported. Muna Jawahara, uh, Muna Zahra, feel free. 
So I, I, I want to send a message for uh, uh, Sudanese new generation who protest, uh, especially today in the street, and they prepare for 13 of June, um, a big um, event. Uh, yani I want to say that nonviolence is work. As one of our interviews, I told us, me and Maria in the, in the sitting, he said, he told us, it's work, nonviolence is work. <laughs> That's what he said. So it's work, but uh, also we need to uh, commit to it and we need to uh, understand the two pillars of nonviolence to success. The one pillar is to uh, power of people, building power of people, extending uh, the participatory. Um, in the revolution itself. So we need to know that we want to add, add more people, not um, dividing people. So any mentality of dividing is again, is um, a revolution itself and nonviolence revolution. So the second pillar and it's very important, we need to understand our steps, where we go, uh, what the, 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 the value needs, what's our objective, what the vision of, of Sudan. So uh, in, in my opinion, one I, I learned from this report and from uh, our trainings and nonviolence research, previous research, nonviolence these two things, extending pe uh, the revolution itself and strategize. It's very important to strategize um, our, our steps. Awesome. Muna, you have any final thoughts for the panel before we close out? Uh, yeah, I would like to thank you all for that. And I'm, I'm sure that like this meeting, it will be very useful for all of us. And I'm going to say sorry again for not being with you, but we have really a very hard situation here in the hospital as we have a lot of uh, people. So I'm so sorry for that. But really, thank you so much for this meeting. And I think uh, again and again, if we have a lot of like this meeting with your son, with people and with the residential communities and with the, all the civil society, it will be very useful for us. And if we have more discussion in the report, because the report is very important and have a lot of, uh, of uh, finding that is very useful for the people if we have a lot of discussion for it with more people from the community, community as a journalist, it would be very good for all of us. Thank you so much again. Well, I'd like to take the opportunity again to thank all of our panelists for attending, some in very difficult circumstances. We really appreciate you all being here. And thanks again to the audience for, for joining us. We hope that you found this as engaging as we did. Uh, until next time, thank you all again. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.